afternoon and welcome to the 213th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. Today is a COVID calls discussion of COVID-19 vaccines, law, nationalism, and politics with Anna Santos Rutschman. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, February 2nd, 2021, there are 2,244,501 deaths globally from COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 444,123 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Tom Moore, who cheered COVID-ravaged UK with charity walks, dies at 100. This appeared in today's New York Times and was written by Mark Landler, February 2nd, 2021, Dateline London. Tom Moore, the redoubtable 100-year-old Army veteran whose charity walks raised $45 million for British hospitals and made him a national symbol of pluck in a country ravaged by the coronavirus pandemic, died on Tuesday. His death was announced on his Twitter account. Mr. Moore had been treated for pneumonia in recent weeks and tested positive for the coronavirus last month. His daughter, Hannah Ingram Moore, said on Twitter on January 31st, he was taken to a hospital because he needed help breathing, she said, and his condition then deteriorated. Dapper, spry, and droll, Mr. Moore ambled his way into the hearts of people across Britain, 82 steps at a time, the number it took to cover the length of a brick patio beside his garden in Marston Mortain, a village an hour north of London. He did 100 laps before turning 100 last April. Mr. Moore's feet, which grew out of a challenge from his son-in-law, became a media sensation when Miss Ingram Moore publicized her father's walks and began an online fundraising campaign for the National Health Service in the UK, with donors that included Prince William, who called him a one-man fundraising machine, Mr. Moore quickly raised 32.8 million pounds or $45 million. In the process, Mr. Moore became a pop culture phenomenon. His walks were broadcast by the BBC. His military rank until he was made an honorary colonel by the Army Foundation College. He negotiated a multi-book deal, recorded a chart-topping song, and was granted a knighthood by Queen Elizabeth II, who came out of seclusion for the first time since the pandemic began to bestow the honor at Windsor Castle in July 2020. At age 94, the Queen made a striking pair with Mr. Moore. 
living links to a British World War II history that has been invoked during the pandemic as an example of the courage and stoicism that the country needs today. As princess, Elizabeth worked as a young driver and truck mechanic during the war, and Mr. Moore was a decorated army officer who fought in the infamous Burma campaign. Born in Kiley, a village in Yorkshire to a family of builders, Mr. Moore was trained as a civil engineer. In 1940, at age 20, he was conscripted and assigned to the Duke of Wellington's regiment. First stationed in Cornwall in southwestern England, he was chosen for officers training and deployed to India. He trained Indian recruits to ride motorcycles, a lifelong passion he had picked up as a boy. Mr. Moore returned home after the war and built a comfortable life as a manager of a concrete company. He remained energetic until his late 90s, mowing the lawn, tending a greenhouse, and driving his own car. But two years ago, he fell in his kitchen, breaking his hip and a rib and puncturing a lung. His hospitalization left him with an enduring appreciation for the doctors and nurses of the National Health Service. As the service struggled with an influx of coronavirus patients last spring, raising money for its beleaguered staff seemed a worthy cause. Never in 100 years when we started did we anticipate this sum of money would be raised, Mr. Moore said. Part of the money he raised is being used to create therapeutic facilities for doctors and nurses to decompress after their work treating COVID patients. Mr. Moore said he viewed his fundraising as a way to support health workers, much as he recalled Britons supporting him and his fellow soldiers during the war. At that time, the people my age, we were fighting on the front line and the general public was standing behind us, Mr. Moore said. In this instance, the doctors and nurses and all the medical people, they're the front line. It's up to my generation to back them up, just as we were backed up. Even after turning 100, Mr. Moore had not lost his sense of adventure. In addition to a trip to Barbados, he expressed a desire to go back to India. That is something I would love to do. But at 100, he said matter-of-factly, you've got a certain time limitation. Okay, let's turn to our conversation for today. I'm really pleased to introduce my guest, Dr. Anna Santos Rutschman has been assistant professor at St. Louis University School of Law since 2018. She focuses on topics related to health law, innovation in the life sciences, intellectual property, and law and technology. At St. Louis University, she teaches FDA law and policy, the seminar Emerging Health Technologies, Vaccine Law and Policy, and patent law and property. Her legal scholarship has appeared or is forthcoming in the UCLA Law Review, Emory Law Journal, Yale Law Journal Forum, Michigan Law Review Online, among many other venues. And her commentary pieces have also been published in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, Huffington Post, Health Affairs Blog, and The Conversation, again, among many other venues. She has a forthcoming book, Vaccines as Technology, Innovation, Barriers, and the Public Interest, which will be coming out with Cambridge University Press in 2022. She's also worked as a consultant to the World Health Organization in 2015 and 16 during the Ebola and Zika outbreaks. Dr. Rushman, thank you so much for joining me today on COVID Calls. Um, thank you for having me. It's, it's kind of awkward because I, I I should say I'm very happy to be here, but I wish we didn't have, you know, the the reason that that propels these conversations. But since since it's happening, um, thank you for having me, and I, I look forward to discussing um, these issues with you. 
you know, that's what you've just said is something that so many people, we still find it hard to even talk about this uncanny time that we we live in. I find myself with emails, you know, corresponding with people who are going to come on COVID calls and I say, we're going to have a great conversation or it's great you can join. I think these superlatives are are failing us somehow. We don't have the right language to talk about this this time, even a year into it, or or maybe I don't. And I mean, we didn't before um, the pandemic, I think, because this this is my, my language has not changed. Right. This is um, you said you invite disaster experts or something like that. And, I, you know, a small portion of my brain said, yeah, my family agrees that you know, if they see me in the kitchen or something like that. But I, I do work in this area and I have for many years um, and we've known about many of these things, the things we're witnessing right now, how underprepared we were, how irrational some decisions, uh, you know, would likely be when we start asking the hard questions, you know, gets a certain number of resources during the response to a large public health crisis and the like. So we were underprepared, we knew it. Uh, we, we've known it in previous um, health crises and we've never really had the vocabulary, the creativity um, to deal with it. Some political um, and non-political willingness to do it um, as well. So that's been missing for a while, but it, even for somebody like me who has been using these words for a long time, monitoring these problems for uh, for a long time, it, it's always difficult when the problem is of this magnitude, right? And um, so, so yes, it still feels um, strange in, in many, many ways. I'll just say, although there are some some signs of hope, so I I don't want to, you know, let that go completely sure. unnoticed because there there are some signs of hope. Well, point. that's and we're gonna I appreciate that, and we're gonna talk about vaccines today, which do offer um, a measure of hope, not the only one, but a, an important one nonetheless. I I would like to start out the way I usually do, which is just to ask you um, where you're calling from and what the pandemic looks like there today. I'm I'm joining from St. Louis, Missouri, which is to say, sort of the heart of the of the Midwest. Um, it, it's not looking um, very very good at this point. Um, the the response to the pandemic here uh, was I, I would characterize it as sort of average. Um, we we have um, spiked when many other places um, also were spiking in um, in the country. It was not the worst um, place if you start looking just at hard data uh, numbers, but the toll has been um, significant. Um, I've been um, working remotely because um, I do have that possibility since March 6th, uh, which is sort of when our area went into into alert. So it's, it's coming in one year, right? Uh, and the situation looks worse than a year ago. Um, so that that's, um, um, that, that's the surrounding environment for me, which is not dissimilar from other areas in the country. Are you, uh, have you been back on campus? Or what's the teaching situation like? I have been back on campus. Um, some people are teaching a hybrid, um, in, in a hybrid model module. So they, they go in and uh, a certain number of students might come in if they so desire. Some courses went entirely um, online. So you mentioned that I teach things like, you know, FDI and health um, law courses and IP intellectual property, which really is patent law, which is something mm -hmm. that vaccines uh, you know, also are uh, affected by on, on many levels. Um, and those were things that we felt, you know, we can do this online. So we, we've, I, I had to go online immediately when, when things shut down last March, but then we elected to remain online 
um, at least you know until the end of the, of the spring semester. The students must be absolutely clamoring to get in your courses right now. I, the colleagues I know who teach public health and history of medicine, they're seeing enrollments like they've never seen before. I mean, students are really hungry to understand the world right now, obviously. They are. So one thing that's slightly different about the place where I work um, is that we have the largest health law um, program in the country. So we're consistently over enrolled. At, at any point in time, we'll have, you know, any anything like 90, 90 students declaring that they're concentrating in, in health law. So that's not unusual for us. What, where you see, you know, that things are a little bit different is that when I teach so in the fall, I have a seminar on um, health, uh, emerging health um, technologies. And for me, vaccines are emerging health technologies. You know, we didn't have COVID vaccines. We now have COVID vaccines. But usually I am very enthusiastic about the one class on vaccines. And this past fall, I had students who wanted to write the final paper on vaccines, multiple students. So that, that's where we noticed um, the, the interest. We, we do offer many, many courses, often over-enrolled or, you know, at the cap. So that for us isn't really changed, but just because of how big the program is. I know one of the areas that you um, are paying a lot of attention to right now is nationalism and the sort of the geopolitics of, of vaccines and, and health right now. I, I want to dive into that and maybe explore it in a number of different dimensions, but maybe just first, could you just explain kind of your general approach, even what you when you use that terminology of vaccine nationalism, what does that mean to you? How do you deploy it? Sure. So I, I have co-opted the, the term nationalism from other sources because this is not something new. This is something that has happened before. And it pretty much uh, refers to the phenomenon of having a certain number of restricted number of uh, players, typically wealthier countries that are able to capture most of the emerging batches of, of vaccines. So this is I think this is a pretty vanilla definition of what vaccine um, nationalism um uh, means um, today we, we've seen it uh, actually we saw it in, in, in the previous pandemic with, with swine flu in 2009 um, if countries have the economic ability to do this tied I would say um, to the to the know-how to the contacts that you know the the firms that are repeat players in vaccine um, development um, then these countries just negotiate bilaterally with um, with these companies and say you know here's my uh, population if it's a two-dose vaccine I'm going to order you know maybe even in some cases above the number of doses that I would need to um, you know to cover my uh, population and uh, that way I cater to my national interests um, and you know, this, if explained like that period, this might make a whole lot of sense, right? If you're the state, um, if um, you uh, think that the number one thing in your agenda is domestic public health, this is how you might operate, right? But outbreaks, pathogens, no, no boundaries, physical and geographical boundaries. So this is going to complicate any uh, calculations that we might want to make. First in tackling the, pro the problem from regional, transnational, with COVID um, a global perspective. And also that means that you are going to likely compromise the position of you know, countries that are not as wealthy and uh, are not going to be able to access either vaccines at all, or in some cases, what's going to be left for them is just not enough for their own domestic needs. So that's, that's how we understand 
uh, vaccine um, nationalism, because I'm a law professor, what I see is contracts at work in a way um, that produce some results that, again, from a global or transnational perspective, I'm uncomfortable with. Mm. The uh, alternative route, I guess, would be, or maybe you can explain a little bit how this works. I mean, we think of the World Health Organization, we do have sort of global, you know, governmental or quasi-governmental agencies, which seem to be primed, or you would think, to coordinate something like a global vaccine strategy. But it doesn't, that doesn't seem to be what's happening. Is there really no form of global governance in this, in this mode? There is global governance to a certain extent. Um, I, you mentioned this, I consulted for the World Health Organization and I teach health law, right? So I, I'm keenly aware of how much we need the World Health Organization, uh, how, how we have needed it historically and how we need it now. But it's a limited uh, international uh, actor. It's one that's very um, important. And the discussions we had about you know, the US leaving the WHO uh, and now returning right to, to the framework. All of those discussions a few months ago reflected uh, visions, I think, of the WHO that say, you know, we have a pretty good sense we need uh, an actor like the WHO. We recognize that the way we built the system around uh, that organization exposes many vulnerabilities. So the WHO cannot, um, I think, um, cannot uh, assume even in collaboration with the many actors that now um, are part of the vaccine ecosystem, uh, it cannot assume the role of centralized um, agent in vaccine governance. It can do something to ameliorate um, the situation we're in. So part of what you were referencing has to do with the formation of this um, public-private partnership that functions as a procurement uh, mechanism and helps redistribute some uh, vaccine doses that we know will become available for um, the next couple months. So, so they can act on, on a remedial basis at this point, um, but they can't really uh, heavily skew the playing fields, you know, to make it a little bit, you know, more fair towards um, countries that might be completely left out. So they can act mar marginally. They've been acting uh, marginally in quantity terms, how much vaccine they can direct towards other parts uh, of the world, but they can't address the root of, um, of nationalism. So if, if another player like the U.S. comes along and says, for circumstances beyond uh, sometimes explanation, but sometimes because that's uh, how a country wishes to, um, to proceed, we are not going to fund the WHO. We are not going to be a part of your pool of resources and distribution of vaccines. We're going to play the, to play the game, you know, as we wish to play it. There's nothing your WHO can do, right? Um, and this is not specific um, to vaccines. This has to do with the entire international um, health um, institutional apparatus that we've created since World War II. And there are many shortcomings. So we need the WHO. The WHO needs players like the, the US, but our answer cannot be corrective interventions come from centralized governance because it we just don't have the infrastructure in place for that i think about you know climate change uh, action and the you know paris accord and the various different attempts that there have been to create again a sort of quasi-governmental structure to allow individual states to take action but in you know coordination with other countries and it always seems to be uh the united states not only but uh in particularly in recent years, 
the United States has has reasserted itself, mostly under Republican administrations, to say, you know, these global initiatives are nice, but we have to maintain autonomy in the in the midst of that. And you know, that seems with climate change, which is I think still hard for people to understand that that risk. Um, maybe you could give somebody a pass. They don't really get the urgency of it. But in the middle of this pandemic, it seems to me not having a stronger global accord, some ability to actually have countries collaborating in a meaningful way, it just compounds the disaster. Yes, um, I, I, I think that the response we had last year um, was, I think it was abnormal beyond what could be expected. And I think it's, um, um, I sincerely hope it's sort of a one-off um, approach, but uh, um, I, I think we need to, one, be very mindful of what happened and how quickly and how easy it was for the U.S. Um, to say, we're not playing ball with anybody else because that's what the strategy pretty much could you know, be boiled down to. Um, but also, I, I don't think we can read too much into what happened um, last year because it, it was driven by so many um, it, by um, ideologies that are just now emerging and have very little to do with what, for instance, motivated the U.S. and another group of U.S.-like countries, so wealthier um, um, countries, traditional um, players, uh, and uh, many of the geopolitical decisions that frame how the big issues are, are, are addressed and then typically invites, you know, countries that are not as wealthy um, to partake in the framework that they have developed. The U.S. did exactly the same thing in 2009 during the swine flu and so did Canada and, and the U.K., right? Um, so I, I think it's important to distinguish between what the U.S. did last year that's, you know, very specific to the time and age we're in right now. And it, it might be that it continues, right? That either four years from now or even, you know, we might be in for a surprise and, and sooner than we uh, think some of those, um, some, some of, of that ideology really uh, evolved into something more uh, permanent. And that's one thing. And certainly the way we quickly tried to retreat uh, from WHO, uh, you know, the climate change frameworks that, that you just mentioned, um, that's very directly connected to uh, how the former administration viewed, uh, you know, the international chessboard. So it's, again, we must win um, and we win it on our own. That is that echoes some of the things that happened in, in the past, but it's still a phenomenon that's distinguishable from what happened in 2009 and we see now with the pandemic. So countries like the US and the same countries, I can't emphasize this, uh, and I did the same thing twice. They pre-ordered vaccine um, doses that pretty much just exhausted the projected capacity uh, for manufacturing vaccines. And this, um, in, in 2009, this was not done uh, under a Republican administration or a Trump administration, which I still distinguish uh, from, you know, the traditional Democratic-Republican uh, divide. I know that's a completely different um, discussion, but I think the Trump administration gets a special uh, you know, a side uh, placement in all of this because there's are things we cannot explain under traditional approaches to public health or international collaboration, right? They obey different 
um, narratives. I, I think this is just something that developed countries, wealthier countries, know they can get away with, right? Um, people cried out, you know, they didn't call it nationalism as much, but but they they call these countries out back um, back in the day. And then what happened was that the swine flu pandemic was a mini pandemic. The pathogen went away somewhat uncharacteristically. So demand for vaccines, so economics, you know, one one, right? Demand for vaccines went down like this, at which point the US and a few other countries said, we shall donate our doses to, uh, you know, less wealthy countries. And, and WHO at that point incidentally says, terrific, we need more actions like this. Whereas I think, no, what you need is a, a scenario in which whether a particular country gets access to vaccines does not depend on what a few countries decide to do at any point during the pandemic. So this is a very long way of telling you that I, I think you're absolutely correct on that there's a lot of misunderstandings about the magnitude of the problems and you know how systemic they are and that we don't respond in the ways we probably should uh, because um, you know people don't fully understand the longer roots of the problem. On the other hand, this replicates many things we've seen in history happening over and over and over because you know, some countries can do exactly what uh, we see them um, do, which is to use a perfectly legal mechanism and place these orders well in advance and before anybody else. There's so many angles on this that I, I want to I want to talk about more. That I um, just want to remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls, and I'm talking about vaccine nationalism and other aspects of vaccine law and policy with Dr. Ana Santos Rutschman today. Um, one part, just before we go a little bit further, because I think it's it, to come back to this nationalism concept, which I think is quite useful in this regard to help me understand something, is that it's not strange at all since World War II, certainly, to see individual wealthy countries, and let's take the United States, but not only the United States, asserting its nationalism while asserting itself as a global partner. I mean, in a sense, that's what's behind a lot of the Bretton Woods kind of organizations. So you kind of, it, it, it's a kind of statecraft where you can have both, right? You know, it's the United States in the lead, the first among many nations, or what the Bush administration called the coalition of the willing, maybe. Um, you know, and so you don't have to, you don't have to choose necessarily. Um, but you, you put a pin in something there that was interesting to me. You said, you know, that what we saw with the Trump administration was different than that. It's a different kind of nationalism. Some people call it populism. Maybe it's also what we've seen in Brazil and Hungary to the UK to a certain extent. That's a little harder to predict. You said it's a it's a little harder to get your head around in terms of how we could think the state. So we could assume states will try to assert national privilege in the middle of a disaster. That's nothing new. But you saw something a little different with the Trump administration's approach. Is that right? Um, yes, I think many of us um, did. So what I would like to emphasize, and that's why I, I bring up the 2009 swine flu pandemic, uh, which triggered a vaccine race. Many people probably did not hear uh, about it, but there was a race like this one going on. There was another with Ebola and Zika. They were not 
pandemics that affected countries like the US, right? But so this is something we've seen and, and now we've seen it under different administrations and we've seen it in different countries for that matter, right? So you and I are talking in the US and uh, about the US because obviously the US uh, carries a lot of um, uh, force in international um, discourses, negotiations, etc. right? But uh, um, this is something we've seen over and over and over and we've seen administrations with different leanings doing similar things and, and, and um, you mentioned something that's um, I, I think important to remind people of which is to say the same actions can be presented um, under dual lenses right the u.s can say we are international partners we are not doing what what the trump administration did last year we're returning to the paris accord we're returning to the who right we uh we are um you know like check 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 we do all this right while at the same time saying and next time there's a pandemic we're going to place an order for 200 million to begin with and reserve some more so and 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 i I understand, um, I, I, I fully understand and see how both things are rationalized, you know, at exactly the same time, right? Um, and, and we know why, uh, why, this, um, why this happens. What happened last year with the Trump administration was, I think, of a different uh, nature and tied into, you know, what people have called populism, um, tied into some erratic behavior at some point. Um, um, a lot, um, a lot probably also tied to the necessity of, um, you know, having something to show off, uh, something to talk uh, about, but not even navigating um, the waters um, properly. I'm thinking uh, about the attempts to contact um, German pharmaceutical companies and the approach that if I want this, I shall buy it, right? Uh, and Angela Merkel and a few other people in the German government were very vocal about how they did not like that approach and would never permit that to happen and immediately bought more stock in some of these companies. Um, then the administration approached um, Sanofi uh, and so a French, a French uh, a pharmaceutical company wanting preference. Again, this is all contracts at work and this idea that if we want something, there's a contractual mechanism that will make this you know, work out for me in the end. Um, approaching a French company and saying, cater first to the US market before catering to the French market, can we do this? And again, this is private uh, initiative on, on the side of pharmaceutical companies and the company said yes, and then the next day they had to say no because the French government also didn't like that prospect, right? Um, so these are some things that uh, I think um, the way the response was structured and particularly the purchase of, of vaccines or these attempts at negotiating visibly uh, in, in ways that seem to replicate other traits of um, the administration, in particular the, the former president, right? This is what I think is abnormal. Um, and anytime we try to understand as we are trying now already and, and will in the future undoubtedly, you know, try to understand why we responded to COVID um, domestically and internationally the ways we did, um, I think it's important to say, you know, some things are probably um, Trump specific, um, but the scary thing is that we don't we don't know if there's you know Trump two, Trump three. Um, we we don't know um, if down the road this is going to become a recurring phenomenon. So we need to worry about how quick and easy it is for the U.S. to say, and now we don't participate. It's not just the dual justification. We just choose not to participate, and we're going to tilt, you know, the balance in, in the scales in this particular way, versus what happens on a regular basis. And it doesn't matter if it's, you know, a blue or rather administration. You will see embodiments of nationalism. 
So you, you took us back in time to that, that earlier period where the Trump administration tried to um, basically purchase German um, vaccine manufacturing capacity, French as well. And it's, it's just been in the news that uh, AstraZeneca had promised a certain number of doses to the EU and was not able to deliver that. I wonder if you could sort of break this down from a legal perspective a little bit for me, because it's, it's hard for me to know what exactly, um, what kind of recourse a country has. So if the health system or the state of Germany or France or the United States reaches an agreement with a vaccine manufacturer in another country, and then it, the country in which that manufacturer resides says, no, we don't like that. We need that for our country. Or they undersupply or the price is wrong. Who adjudicates that? Um, you know, so those are difficult questions, and, and there's somewhat there's multiple questions in there. So the the contracts cover some of these aspects, right? Um, and um, some of these um, aspects have been agreed, uh, you know, upon. So if if the price is probably not going to be much of a problem at this uh, point, we're seeing that just across the board with. Uh, many of the vaccines that are already being distributed. So s some of these things we don't worry, this I don't worry about um, as much. Um, these contracts are not exceptional. We see them over and over and over. Um, I think when where things get more complicated um, is when you get to things like we're undersupplying, which again happens on a regular basis, right? I bet you there were several uh, contracts just here today in Missouri that uh, you know, uh, were not really fulfilled because something happened, either pandemic related or not, and somebody did not deliver, you know, as many widgets as they had promised. Except that, of course, we're much more uncomfortable when the widget is a life-saving uh, drug or a preventative for a pandemic. Sure. Um, from a legal perspective, during the pandemic, if somebody has a problem supplying a widget, and even if that widget happens to be a vaccine, um, what we know from, uh, from practice and from legal theory is that if you have a real impediment to fulfilling an obligation. And I mean, in a pandemic, we can understand that there are several um, shortages uh, and other things that might justify, uh, you know, breaching some terms of, of the contract. There are ways to excuse that. Hmm. Um, so what I'm trying to say is that we can subject this to, you know, our usual approach to a contract bargaining. It's like you said you'd supply this much, you have um, to do it. You have a contract in place and it has to go to that country because that's what you said you would be doing. Oh, you couldn't because you were lacking product. Okay, there are ways to solve this. And we, we can give them more time, for instance, to uh, come up with the goods that's, you know, because there's demand on the other side. Mm -hmm. So this would be the normal procedure. Um, uh, and then we have, we know exactly, you know, when we get to things like pricing and the like, the contracts deal with um, that. So we don't expect big issues there. The problem is that this subject's vaccine delivery during the pandemic to pretty much the same dynamics of widget delivery, right? Whether it's uh, an important uh, widget from a social um, welfare perspective or, or not, which is why I think um, that what's happening in Europe right now with AstraZeneca and European Union, you know, just clashing royally over this. Um, I, I think this is an area in which law is clearly present and probably should not be as expressive as it has been just because you can threaten legal action against somebody sometimes you may consider not um, doing so because i think this is going to have a lot of unintended um, consequences first mm -hmm. i think that um in the context of 
the vaccines having been developed very quickly and all the misinformation and disinformation surrounding this area, you don't want um, to agitate things even further and make people start questioning what's happening with these vaccines and what are the hidden agendas. You don't want to give propagators of you know, misinformation, misinformation, just another excuse to instrumentalize this. So that's one uh, first, you know, set of concerns. And on the other hand, it goes back to the idea of nationalism that we were discussing. And I was making the point that we, this is legal. These contracts are um, legal. Um, and I think we understand at this point, and we've known this for months, it's going to be under supply. The vaccine is going to be under supply um, initially. And I, I have sympathy for these companies that, are cranking up production to the max. So I think it's counterproductive for the countries that place these enormous orders to then say, but you're violating the contract. Look, this is a pandemic, right? So I, I think this is a moment that calls for some balance and not threats that I will sue you for breach of contract. Can you do it? You probably can do it. Is there a defense for that? Probably that too. It's just one of those areas where if we can stay out of, you know, the legal arena and just reasonably address this in a way that maximizes distribution concerns that's where we should be headed i had thought, thought of that, of that. Um, perspective that um it would build continue to build to a sort of disinformation or conspiracy case you know that if there was these disputes and all of a sudden they're going to court uh, and the headline is, you know, two countries are fighting over vaccine. And, you know, if, if people are not watching it closely and they're already predisposed to think that this whole thing is a sham anyway, or that just deep-pocketed companies have been, have cooked it. And we've all seen these conspiracies out there, that this is, the whole thing is a conspiracy to sell vaccine. I hadn't really considered that it would play into that. So that there's a case for restraint. I guess, in that regard, or a case for diplomacy. We talk about vaccine nationalism, but I suppose it also raises the possibility for vaccine diplomacy here as well to avoid a situation like that. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And I think you're capturing this, this well, this tension, because we've talked about the shortcomings of the international um, um, system institutionally and now the manufacturing level, right? We know these shortcomings exist. So problems will arise during a pandemic. I mean, that was the Bill Gates TED talk, you know, that then became famous, right? And more to the point, this is what multiple experts said in multiple books, articles, reports, etc. So we knew this was going to happen. Just because there's a legal mechanism you can point to and say, you're infringing this one, and particularly you know, this, this provision think twice before doing it, right? Because the next pandemic hopefully will not be as severe as this one. And you will not have a hundred plus companies or projects coming together saying we're going to develop vaccines. Something that people forget is that Dr. Fauci, before he became as popular as he is today, around February uh, of 2020 was saying, um, and, and this is on, on, on record, we're trying to get companies to start developing COVID-19 vaccines. It's not as easy as you would think it is. So there was a moment, it was very, very short, you know, when you measure it against the, the scale of the pandemic and the timeline, but in, in, in which there were not a hundred, you know, willing participants and there might not be a hundred next time around. So on the one hand, you know, it's a given. We have had problems in, R&D, research and development, in manufacturing, we're probably going to have them again after this outbreak and probably well into the next pandemic and epidemic and the like. So 
what is the point of going for the nuclear option and saying just because there's a contract that predicts this against this very, very specific infrastructural deficit we have, why trigger a legal legal skirmish that's probably not going to help anybody because there there's demand for these vaccines, right? Um, we know, for instance, in the US, we know exactly how much you're making per vaccine dose that you're able to deliver. We, we don't have the traditional, you know, um, demand problem that's usually the big thing that keeps players away from vaccine development. So that that's one fewer concern to address. Why are you going to compromise relationships with this pharmaceutical company by, you know, going for the nuclear option simply because you can't point to a provision in the contract? You knew that probably it would be hard to satisfy in, in the first place. And then what I, um, so that's, that's one thing. And that's, I think you're absolutely correct when you say, you know, more of a diplomacy uh, approach would be much better than just saying, here's my extreme position and I'm not going to budge because, you know, I'm owed something. Good luck next time you need something and you go tell the same company, right. please manufacture some for me. This time I will not, you know, sue or, you know, make you look bad in, in the press. So, so there's that. But vaccines are particular and they're not the only area in, in health um, in which people have specific concerns about the technology. You have scientists saying it's safe and effective according to scientific paradigms, meaning sometimes bad things will happen, but on balance, this is safe, right? Vaccines have long been known as a turbulent area. So anything you do that's remotely vaccine related, that's going to include things like how you portray conflicts with the pharmaceutical companies that provide the vaccine that goes in your body, mm -hmm. right? Any of anything around those lines that seem so removed from things like what's happening on Twitter or, or Facebook is actually deeply connected, can be weaponized and will be weaponized by different communities, including, and this is no surprise, I'm sure, but the Russians and the post-Soviet countries who've discovered that we love to argue about va vaccines and safety of vaccines in America. So they pretty much send all sorts of vaccine-related misinformation our way and we consume it, right? So, and this is just another pathway to be explored. I just want to remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking today about vaccines, vaccine nationalism with Professor Ana Santos Rushman. Um, let's talk a little bit about the context here of innovation and the intellectual property aspects of these vaccines. You know, the um, I know the mRNA technology was not just invented this year; it's building on many years of research and development. But it's still impressive, I think, to everyone how quickly it's been um, developed and deployed. And certainly any time a new technology comes, um, either if it's state-sponsored or completely private or public-private, as it often is, there are going to be significant intellectual property concerns. I wonder if you could give us a kind of a intellectual property 101 with these vaccines, particularly these new ones. Okay. Um, sure. So in law and in innovation um, theory, we call, in, in intellectual property, we really mean patents here. So we call patents sort of the default um, legal um, innovation regime. And what we mean by that is that if you think about law in general, we don't like, you know, very severe market distortions, right? So if you do anything that affects competition, we normally just, you know, slap your wrist or do something worse and don't let you do it. And patents do the opposite. They make sure that for a period of time, 
you are going to distort the market to the point that you're probably going to be the only one able to commercialize that specific version of, of the technology. So patents do something that law traditionally doesn't allow you to do, be uh, sort of the monopolist or quasi-monopolist um, in a particular area, because the assumption is if we don't do this, we know that certain areas, and this most definitely includes vaccine development, are just not very profitable. If you think about what these companies, the ones you've heard about, uh, let's set Moderna aside because they've never really marketed anything, so they're sort of a different type of company, but everybody else really known in the pharmaceutical and biopharmaceutical um, space, you go look in their business plans and vaccine development for most of them is, it is marginal, right? Um, it's not to say that some of them don't turn a profit on vaccines. Um, some do, but it's it's very very small compared to uh, to other areas they spend money uh, on, and many companies actually just lose money on on vaccine development. So the assumption is if we don't give you a patent, there's not enough of an incentive for you to come to market, and and that's why anytime there's a vaccine race or a drug race of some um, sort, everybody asks about the intellectual property landscape because you assume it's going to be populated pretty uh, pretty heavily. Um, so here, here's the deal with uh, COVID-19 vaccines. We don't fully know what the patent landscape looks like. Hmm. Um, and one reason is, is purely technical, which is patent offices, you know, sometimes take uh, up to 18 months to publish patent applications. So it's possible that some of, uh, of the aspects of the technologies, particularly the mRNA um, technology and, and, and things that we have not had in the market as long, are covered by patents and we don't fully know yet. So we, we We've known since last year that the first COVID vaccine, COVID-19 vaccine related patents was issued in China. That's the first, they announced it. Uh, so that's one way to find out. We have some good ideas of what, about what's happening in the US and a few other places, but it's sort of foggy. Um, so there's a lot of uncertainty about what, what um, is happening for sure, which is not typically how things uh, unfold, right? Because um, uh, it's the first time in the field of vaccines in many, many, decades at this point in which we have a disruptive technology like um, mRNA and it's a type of technology that we think is going to be useful in vaccines different types of vaccines targeting diseases that so far don't have um, a vaccine but also in other areas personalized medicine we you know we anticipate the technology being used uh, in, in many other areas so intellectual property in one particular segment of the technology is going to be very valuable but you, we still don't have a sense what it looks like. Um, so um, that's sort of how things um, look right now. And then oddly enough, I'll conclude by saying this, none of it is really of concern right now. I, I have some question marks about what's going to happen in the future when we start looking at the mRNA vaccine technology and patents. Think about CRISPR, right? Um, Nobel Prize just went um, to um, developers of the technology and we're still in the midst of the intellectual property the patent battle between two coasts really and, and two countries right deciding who gets to explore which aspects of the technology and it is possible we're headed for something like that when we have a clear idea yeah. of all the claims out there that being said it has not affected the rights and the reason is because at this point it doesn't really matter what's covered or not covered there's no way to compete with these pharmaceutical companies. And we go back to the infrastructural shortages uh, again. You can't just replicate a vaccine like you replicate, uh, you know, Tylenol. I show you a pill and you make a copy. There's just no way. If I, even if I were to tell you how to make the vaccine, you can't just set up the manufacturing infrastructure 
Um, and companies are not sharing that information to begin with. So we're just inherently limited. And so far, IP has really not come into play that much. But we have surprises coming our way. It's an interesting dimension of that because the way you're describing it because of the um, significant market power of these pharmaceutical companies. It's not like they're in a IP race with a startup company or something like that. I mean, these are these are big, deep-pocketed companies that are pursuing, have been pursuing similar lines of research, many of them at the same time. But I, I just want to First of all, am I, am I describing that correctly? I mean, we're really not talking about a concern that a court might have that, hey, you know, um, uh, you know, monopoly concern notwithstanding. This is not an issue where smaller companies are being crowded out because they just couldn't compete in that space. Is that is that correct? In, in terms of COVID-19 vaccines, I mean, you, you've seen that warp speed is, you know, it's a limited number of players. And then we know right. what the candidates are elsewhere. That, that's it for COVID-19. There's no room for anybody else. So okay. when you move that quickly, it's going to be the players with the infrastructure in place, which also are going to be the ones that have been in talks with different agencies right in the US, so different parts of the of the government, well, here and, and abroad, right? So that's where the know-how, the institutional know-how is. So th there's no way for a startup to be one that fast or have the manufacturing possibilities or even have you know negotiated with the government before so in this context yes down the road however um that, that's where i i'm i don't know this is one of those where i don't know what's going to happen and, and the reason is we need to have a much better understanding of what the patent landscape um looks like because these are not the only company moderna was not the only company working on mrna technology right and it's when we start looking into what exactly uh, is covered you know by under the umbrella of COVID-19 vaccine-related um, technology and what are the frontiers between that and applying the same type of platform technology for a different purpose. And you might well have smaller companies there. So the, it's, it's sort of the future and it's the beyond COVID-19 vaccine area, uh, but patents issuing you know, now or, or soon, that's what's going to be really, really interesting because you're absolutely right. These are all big players, even Moderna, which has never better brought a product to a market, but it's it's an enormous player. So they look kind of like the new kid on, on the block. So they would be the startup, except that they're not. Um, their um, um, their scientific knowledge, their uh, funding situation, their uh, personal and institutional relationship with government agencies, and I, and I mean this in the best possible uh, way because that's also necessary to to bring um, products um, to market. Um, they they're pretty much like one of the big players, one of them, right? Just just a slightly different um, profile. But they started out small, smaller than you know, like Pfizer or um, Sanofi did in, in this race, or even ten years ago when they started playing around with mRNA technology. They started out small because a lot of the stuff you can do in R&D for mRNA can be done at the small scale. So if we start finding all these patents, you will also find startups or quasi startups at that point working on air, in areas that are adjacent to what these patents are likely to cover, and that's where you know, skirmishes might start, but we don't know that yet. Uh, it's really fascinating. And, and so if, if it, I think I've got this right, and you, you correct me where I'm wrong here, you've got a situation where in the middle of a disaster and the government um, creates Operation Warp Speed, they're trying to encourage as many different entrants into the marketplace as possible because it's a, 
utmost national concern. We're just talking about the U.S. here. They don't worry too much on the front end of the possibility for patent competition down the road. They believe that basically that can be sorted out. I mean, it didn't, or is it possible that it kind of set up a situation here where there's going to be a lot of litigation down the road because you're inviting these companies into the same space? I, I don't think they were too concerned about the IP situation, whether frankly, when they said, so it, with warp speed, I think they were actually trying to minimize the number of players. Um, and that, that's why you saw initially there's like, you know, four front runners and six, because the, you know, again, go, going back to the beginning, it doesn't make sense to have a hundred or almost 200 as we did at one point vaccine development projects. It doesn't make sense. That, that's too much. We're better at, you know, at, at vaccine development than, than that, right? So there was dispersion of resources and attention. And, you know, so, some of these projects were just free riding on, on the opportunity and we knew they were going to go away. So I was, I, I don't love the way warp speed was um, set up. I think it's very problematic. I think it should be transformed into something else if we're going to make it a permanent uh, feature of our system. But they were getting one thing right, which is reduce the number of players. And when they did, when you start looking at the vaccines, um, the technology is different. It's sufficiently different, you know, between the different um, companies. So I don't think they were breeding intellectual property disputes for the future. Mm. I think that they were helping accelerate some of the patent act patenting activity in these emerging areas of technology because they helped prioritize mRNA vaccines, right? Imagine that somebody had said, we are not going to put a, a lot of money on this one. We knew they would because since post-swine um, flu pandemic, the U.S. was very, very um, um, invested in this type of vaccine technology, which people already thought held great promise. So we did that one right strategically. So we were going to spend money on it during COVID. But if somebody had said, we don't know if FDA is going to license this because we've never had this type of technology, will they issue an emergency use authorization for a new type of vaccine technology? So if somebody had had those doubts, and if we're not adamant that that was one of the types of technologies that we wanted to spend money on, like we have been doing for a decade, uh, then imagine somebody had said, mm, not this one, right? You would not see as much, you know, a flurry of a flurry of activity in mRNA, R&D in general. So we've helped with that. The pandemic has helped with that. You were going to get mRNA vaccines anyways, but you would have gotten them five, ten years from now. Right. And anytime there's an emerging area of technology, patenting, patenting and attempts to patent things in those adjacent um, areas just increase so that that's a byproduct that's how the system works okay whatever the next big technology is you're going to see more patenting activity uh, in that area so that's inevitable and we just need to you know be prepared for that right but i don't know if that we're going to have a crispr like um um fight in in this area we don't necessarily have to it's just we need to be pretty aware at this point that we don't fully know what it looks like and what the implications are going to be for players you know, doing follow and research after COVID.
Well, thank you for explaining that in that detail. And I, there's another piece of this I want to turn to. You mentioned earlier uh, about disinformation. It's been a theme we've talked about a lot in COVID calls. There's tremendous research happening right now about disinformation, misinformation, conspiracy. They're not all the same. Uh, Anti-vaccination is also different from vaccine hesitancy. They're all connected. They're all maybe next door to each other, but with different purposes and different players. Having said all of that, I'm really curious about the law here. What can somebody say about a vaccine? What can somebody say about a pharmaceutical company in, in this time? And particularly in social media, where, as you pointed out earlier, particularly bad actors or people who want to create a fear of vaccine, um, you know, they have talked about uh, Russia, for example, you know, intentionally using it as a sort of cyber warfare tool. Um, I'm just sort of curious of what the limits are here. I mean, in, in that context, it's war. And so there's not much that we can do in a courtroom against Russia. But in the United States, I'm curious, what can people say about vaccine, uh, vaccine company and, and get away with it? So, you know, that, that's, again, that's a good set of questions. Uh, yeah. Too many but, questions. Everything you work on is so fascinating. I'm asking too many things, but sorry, whatever of that is interesting, go ahead and-, and No, I, I think you just managed to invite a law professor that, you know, <laughs> has now said it once and, and I think now twice that, you know, maybe we shouldn't be thinking about law that much. You know, it, it, it is funny to me that, you know, I went into law because I thought it was fascinating, you know, the roles that, laws and regulations play and just how easy it is to, you know, something invisible and it, it will dictate who gets a vaccine and who doesn't, who gets to say something and who doesn't. And then here I am telling you, it's maybe probably most definitely not about what the law can do. It's about what we should do, you know, absent legal interventions, I think. Um, he, here's the thing. You can pretty much say whatever you want about vaccines because um, freedom of speech, right? And, and um, in the context that I think worries me the most and the one where vaccine misinformation, disinformation, conspiracy theories are the most um, you know, prevalent, that's the online environment and social media in particular. We know this is how um, this is how vaccine misinformation, which I'm gonna use as a sort of a catch-all uh, term for all the things we wish would was not, you know, we're not being conveyed online but are because they're inaccurate about vaccines. All this misinformation travels predominantly these days through social media. And we have extremely good data on, on, on all of this. We know, for instance, that up until recently, at least, Facebook accounted for about half of vaccine misinformation um, circulating um, in mainstream social media. So we know exactly where it's happening. Um, the problem is that it's really, we, we don't have a way to, or an effective way to compel social media to remove a lot of this content. There's a fair amount of social media self-regulation, some of, of it um, I, I think commendable, a lot of it insufficient because, um, you know, long, long story. Uh, it, it's not uh, it's not very effective, some of the things that have been done, but long story um, short, some of the things that you can say, oh, here's a law we could propose will definitely be challenged uh, on First Amendment um, grounds because a lot of the limitations on speech that you can say, you know, I'm going to pass a law um, that prohibits um, this type of speech from, from circulating, um, some of 
a lot of those limitations don't apply to social media. They're private actors. They're not government um, actors. Um, so at this point, uh, vaccine misinformation is pretty much regarded like the type of fake news that you might see in other domains. And we can't really regulate that in, in, in some, as some people um, have said they would like it to see regulated because we, it has not been construed as presenting imminent harm, for instance, or being the types of speech that the Supreme Court has said, this is so problematic, we'll allow you know, for this to be regulated. We're not there. And then there's something called Section 230 that says, uh, and, and for very good reasons, um, it, it says that social media has some leeway, right? So if there's content that they're hosting that's uh, that's uh, problematic, um, they they still get to carry that. And if you know, they get to decide which steps to take um, towards removing that content. So legally, you can again go for a nuclear option and say we are going to say this type of speech is pretty much like the most problematic form of speech, like hate speech, and you make that case. Make that case now, try to pass a law like that. Now, during the pandemic, you're going to fuel contestation of vaccine. You're going to also get a Supreme Court that has just changed, uh, you know, shape uh, and is leaning differently um, at this uh, point. So you're going to get a Supreme Court where you're still not particularly good at reading uh, and ask them to weigh in on First Amendment and whether we can characterize vaccine misinformation as things like hate speech or other things that you start talking about, you know, pornography and this and that when, when you start going into these areas. It's not what I would recommend during a pandemic, mm -hmm. rather, rather frankly. So can, can we can we build legal arguments, put them together and say, this is how we could get some of this removed automatically? Yeah, we, we can. My, my students can make that case, right? Um, after a few months of, of law school. Should we be doing that? I'm not sure we should be doing that because I think it's going to get even more combustible when we talk about vaccines. But when you know Facebook or Twitter uh, puts additional information up next to a tweet or a post to say, you know, this may not be true, um, or when they go further than that and they ban certain users, like let's say, you know, the president, the former president of the United States, there that's private entity taking this action. They take that action because they want to be good corporate citizens. They take that action because they're afraid that they could be sued. They take that action because they think the Justice Department may be more aggressive um, under the next administration with this kind of thing. I think we don't have to choose one of those necessarily. But I, I'm curious, again, since you're an expert in this, you know, when, it, when a company like Facebook or Twitter takes those kind of steps, they're signaling that they're aware of this as a problem, but they're dealing with it in a private, in a private way. They're not inviting regulation. What are they really concerned about there? Um, I, I think, as you mentioned, there's a mix of motivations. And it, it really is social media specific, um, I think. So you had Pinterest early on. So Pinterest did this before COVID um, because we had uh, outbreaks of measles in 2019 across the US. And they were, they were resurfacing in areas in which uh, you, you know vaccination rates started dropping um, dramatically. And this is not exclusive to the US, actually. Uh, the Western world at this point um, is largely contending with uh, with the same problem, and we're seeing rates of vaccine confidence go up in places like Africa. So, things are, this is not specific at all to the U.S., but we saw some social media intervening early on. So, Pinterest initially said we're blocking vaccine 
posts. That's it, right? It's a, it's a suppression approach. And then they pair that with the kind of educational materials you were talking um, about. And then you had the likes of Facebook that resisted self-regulation for the longest time. And even some of the things you've seen announced um, recently that, yes, they're uh, amping it up a, a little bit, but they still allow for the monetization of vaccine misinformation, for funneling strategies that start on Facebook and then will take people to, you know, newsletters and at the end of the day, somebody's going to offer it to sell them, um, you know, some alternative uh, medicine. So they've not really tackled this. And in some cases, you have a sense that Facebook has been involved in so much in terms of the fake news misinformation discourse from the Holocaust stance, right, in which they flipped completely to electoral problems they've had. And I think for, you know, a player like Facebook, vaccine is one among these, right? Whereas some other social media have responded earlier to vaccine-related uh, topics because, frankly, you probably should not be on Pinterest searching for information about vaccines in the first time. Right? It's, it's for cross-stitching. Uh, other things, right? Um, so I think there's there's a breadth of motivations behind these responses, but I think some of them are limited deliberately um, because some of these companies, and, and Facebook is not for that, um, are, are trying to appear um, as good citizens while not addressing the roots of misinformation. And given the system we have in place, I'm not even sure I can say we should ask this of Facebook, but why should we ask this of Facebook when we've built a system in which we've said, this is how the internet works. We knew some evils were going to come out of it. And I think we need, much as um, as I would like to see, you know, misinformation disappear overnight in the field of vaccines, you know, at least, I understand that a very stringent proposal might affect how the internet works. And, you know, some of the freedoms we don't want to lose collectively, I understand that. So it's, it's more than striking that balance between deploying a very harsh law and, you know, asking for, you know, Supreme Court challenging it, you know, many months or years down the road and letting this absolute, you know, disparate approach amongst social media occur. I think there's something in the middle that we probably should be doing. And that's talking, you know, across, you know, a physical or digital uh, table as opposed to saying, and we're going to regulate you in this very, um, you know, stringent way. I think we're not going to get there, but we also should not let people make money off of misinformation. I think you have, you know, two things that are unacceptable uh, and we need to be more here in the middle and we're not, we're, we're still pretty much, you know, uh, at the beginning of the conversation, I think. We're almost up on time, but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about one more um, area of your expertise, uh, and that has to do with mandates. And, and you know, we've seen uh, the new administration has just come out, um, you know, saying there's a mask mandate now in transportation. Um, you know, anytime I guess you're crossing state lines, uh, you gotta gotta wear the mask now. Um, there's been some discussion, even on COVID calls, I've had a chance to speak to some experts about vaccine mandates. Most of the people I've talked to don't expect to see something like that. But I, I would like to get your perspective on it, particularly because, you know, we're still very early in the Biden administration and they've been assertive, at least on the on the mask mandate. I haven't heard any discussion on their part on vaccine mandates, but certainly that's something the administration could consider for in federal workplaces, obviously. Um, what, what are you, some of your, your thinking on this? So I, I think that masks and vaccines in terms of mandates, you know, apples and oranges, um, and I'm a big fan of the mask mandates. Um, I think 
except when it comes to things like um, mandates or, or you know obligations that would cover healthcare professionals for obvious reasons because we have those we we have requirements that people be vaccinated against the flu for instance if they want to you know work in, in, in certain places where they're uh, in contact with either a lot of potential carriers of the disease or people with uh, you know vulnerable um, immune systems and, and, and the like um, so apart from that very specific um, uh, area uh, I actually think that mandates are not a very good idea for first um, and and like some of the things that you know the government can do at the national level that would help with a pandemic means we cannot have a federal mandate um, it's uh, I, I think that it's something you know most public health law experts would agree on. Uh, this is up to the states, right? So we can have a mandate, a vaccine mandate here in, um, in, in Missouri and in Illinois doesn't have one or vice versa. So it's just ineffective because you cannot deal with something um, you know, on, on large scale, it's, you know, the problem times 50 and how you're going to address it. I don't think there are good localized tools at this point. One thing is what we have, um, you know, for things like measles in which you see something very uniform um, across the United States, you will not see that for COVID. So I, I don't think that state mandates are going to be very effective. And again, they're going to be very controversial. So why open the door to more controversy if, uh, again, one state does it, the next one doesn't, you know, uh, it's not as effective um, as if we had a more uniform policy. And on the other hand, Again, I think this is the third time, just because the law might allow you to do it, it doesn't mean you should mm -hmm. um, do it. It also goes back to this idea that right now and for the foreseeable future, we don't have enough vaccine doses. So you don't have a, a mandate worthy problem. We just need more doses to begin with because we're not at the point where we have enough that we shall tell people, you come here because you're not vaccinated yet, right? Yeah. So why, why resort to a legal tool that caters to a problem you don't have yet. By the time we have enough vaccines, probably a mandate is not warranted from just from a public health perspective, because we might be getting progressively closer to uh, our uh, immunity. And then finally, these the development of these vaccines um, was surrounded by, again, Trump administration specific blunders. FDA did some very strange things I've never seen it do uh, before. And now a lot of people are questioning its credibility. Same with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Um, same with other agencies, right? Um, add that to misinformation, to disinformation and conspiracy um, theories. And you're gonna go tell somebody uh, who's concerned about what happened last year that we're mandating uh, vaccines. I, I just don't think this is a good idea. I think, can can we do it in certain places? Again, we've talked about hospitals and healthcare facilities. Can we do it um, on a state-by-state -state basis? We probably can. It's probably legal. Can we do it federally? We can. So we know the law. We know the law in and out. It's just, you're not looking for the law. You're looking for, you know, collaboration and cooperation and i don't think it's the law that's going to get you there this time just a reminder you can catch COVID calls every weekday 5 p.m eastern time we've gotten just an absolute graduate level uh experience here in this last hour with my guest uh anna santos rutschman we covered so many different aspects of vaccines um thank you so much for joining me today and for taking on these disparate 
different things. I really wish I could be a student in your in your class and go deeper into some of the case law behind some of these things we've been talking about. You're an expert at communicating really complicated things in a way um, that I think we could apprehend. Thanks a lot. Thank you for uh, for having me. And it turns out I think all of the questions you uh, you had for me were related. So you were exactly on point on how all of this is sort of a delicate um, ecosystem and we're learning to live in it. So thank you so much for having me. Just want to remind everybody, you can catch COVID calls every weekday, 5 p.m. And you can catch uh, tomorrow, we're going to be starting, and for the rest of the week, uh, three linked episodes in partnership with COVID calls of the American Philosophical Society and the Linda Hall Library. It's going to be three really interesting conversations. And we're going to have the first one tomorrow uh, talking just about what it's been like to run research library amid COVID-19. I'll be talking with Lisa Brower, the director of the Linda Hall Library, and Patrick Spiro, the director of the American Philosophical Society. So thanking my guest, Anna Santos-Rutchman, once again, and please join us tomorrow at five o'clock. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you then.